0: chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 we read Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. Now in this book of Hebrews, remember the reoccurring theme. The word that is going to come up over and over again. And it's the word better. Jesus is better than The prophets in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Jesus is better than the angels in chapter 1 verses 4 through chapter 2. 2 verse 18. Jesus is better than Moses in chapter 3. Better than Joshua in chapter 4. Better than the high priest in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Better than Abraham in chapter 6 verse 13 and to chapter 7 verse 10. He's better than Melchizedek. And by the way, because Jesus is better than Moses, Joshua, the high priest, Abraham, and Melchizedek. Again, this is one of the compelling reasons why Melchizedek is not Jesus. Jesus is better than Abraham, Melchizedek, Aaron, and the priests in chapter 7, verse 11, all the way to chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus is better than the sacrifices in chapter 8, verse 7, and then we're going to see this in chapter 9, and then again in in chapter 10. Why is Jesus a better priest? According to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is a better priest because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7. And that priesthood is administered under a superior covenant, the new covenant. And the new covenant is administered in a better place, a better sanctuary. The sanctuary is in heaven. And so the author will now give five reasons why the old covenant sanctuary in all of its beauty, in all of its splendor, in all of its glory, in all of its magnificence, was still less, diminished, inferior to the new covenant sanctuary. He's going to tell us that the old covenant, number one, the old covenant sanctuary is worldly. That means it's here on this planet, On this earth. In verse 1. Number 2. The old covenant sanctuary is merely a shadow of things to come. We find in verses 2 through 5. The old covenant sanctuary only gave a limited amount of access to the men and women who were a part of the covenant community. In verses 6 and 7. And number 4. The old covenant sanctuary was Temporary in verse 8. And then, number five, the old covenant sanctuary was ineffective in doing what really needed to be done. And that was for us to be changed on the inside, to be changed from the heart in verses 9 and 10. And so the writer is going to contrast the earthly covenant and the earthly sanctuary in verses 1 through 10. With the heavenly sanctuary in verses 11 through 15. The writer is going to give us information about this earthly sanctuary. And he's going to remind us that it serves as an illustration of the limitation and the weakness of the earthly tabernacle. Because it couldn't cleanse the human heart. So look again in verse 1. The old earthbound covenant. The writer says, remember, taking over from chapter 8, verse 13, when he says, in that he says, a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The Old Old Testament, the Old Covenant is getting ready to disappear. The expression... Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. That expression, earthly sanctuary, means of this world. The old King James actually translates this, worldly sanctuary. What it really means is that it's man-made. Even though the Lord instructed Moses about the pattern and the construction and the materials that were to be used. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and you remember in the book of Exodus, the Lord is going to give Moses a picture of this earthly tabernacle that that will accompany the children of, of Israel in the wilderness. And he will give them divine instructions. Later, a more permanent tabernacle is going to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Both are going to be laid out according to divine instructions, heavenly specifications. The reason why this becomes so very, very, very important is that this tabernacle in the wilderness... And the temple that was eventually going to wind up on the temple mount becomes a type and a picture of God's desire to live with his people. I want you to think about that and let that sink in for just a moment. You see, we live in a world where people will often ask the question, where are you, God? How come I can't see you? How come I can't? touch you? How come, I, how come I don't sense your presence? And according to the Bible, the reason is because sin separates us from God. God is radically, fundamentally, ultimately holy. And I hate to break the news to you, but you're not. And neither am I. But God, even from the very beginning, desired to dwell among his people. And you see, that's the value of the tabernacle in the wilderness. They were divinely appointed. The services were to be carried out under God's divine um, direction and God's divine instruction. And so the writer is basically... Saying to us, even though God in all of his grace and his mercy gave Moses the divine instruction. When he gave him the divine instruction, the tabernacle in the wilderness had to be constructed from things from the planet earth. Even though they're precious things like gold and silver. And skins and fabulous dyes. But it required human beings making it. Even though these were human beings who were, if you will, anointed, directed, skilled, and gifted. Many Jews believed that the temple and the tabernacle were proof of God's favor and God's presence. Those of you who are with me when we were studying through the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'll remember that in those two books, when the, the prophets kept warning them that God's judgment was coming to you, they would point to the temple and they would say, We have the temple. God, Look, God's presence is with us in the temple. They used it as an excuse for rebellion and disobedience. And some Christians do exactly the same thing. They say, we have Jesus and we have grace. And you do have Jesus and you do have grace. But that's not a good reason to live in rebellion or disobedience. And so this writer is going to once again remind the Jewish person who's tempted to return to Judaism why this is such a bad idea. Because remember, they're saying, you guys, you meet in homes, and you guys meet in the most difficult of circumstances, and you guys meet under weird circumstances. We Jews have this magnificent tabernacle. We have this magnificent temple where all of these cool rites and rituals are done that has fabulous furniture. And the writer doesn't disagree. He's only showing how temporary those things are. In the Old Testament, it's a shadow of things to come. And by the way, if you just turn the page very briefly to Hebrews chapter 10, he's going to say in a moment for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. He's basically giving us the the, the clue and the indication That that these are shadows, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. This tabernacle consisted, we want to go back. We don't want the table of showbread yet. We want to go back to that. There were two courts or precincts, if you will, inside of the tabernacle. There was a place where you could go into. And so when he when he says for a tabernacle was prepared for the first part, the first part in this particular instance means The first section. You're going to see that again in verse 6 where it says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle. So imagine this tabernacle contains two compartments. A compartment where the priests could go in. And then there was another compartment. And this, this was called the holy place. And then there was another compartment called the holy of holies. And so we're given a glimpse into that. And you can see from this illustration there was a porch, a holy place, and a holy of holies. A tabernacle was prepared. And the article of the furnitures are described in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread. And so this was called the sanctuary or the holy place. And so there's three articles of furniture that are described. The first is the seven-armed golden menorah with the oil-burning lamps. Now, I've seen an exact replica of this particular item that is already in Jerusalem and that has been, is being prepared for what observant Jews hope is a temple, But this seven-armed golden menorah had oil-burning lamps. And you can see, you can count. There are three on one side, and there are three on the other side, and then there's one. This is the golden lampstand. And then the second is the table of showbread, which had 12 cakes of bread. These 12 cakes of bread represented the tribes of Levi. And it was also called the bread of the presence And then the golden altar of incense on which the holy incense burned morning and evening. Now the pure gold menorah was kept burning, it says Leviticus 24.3. It burned evening till morning continually. The consecrated showbread was placed on the table, one for each tribe. It was changed weekly. On the Sabbath. And then the priests were allowed to eat the old bread according to Leviticus chapter 24, verses five through nine. The table was made of acacia wood. And over this acacia wood was layered, 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 pure gold. And you're gonna soon find out that the Ark of the Covenant also. Was made of acacia wood. Layered with pure gold. So what does all of this mean? Well Jesus is the light. Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that's going to be altered. Or that's going to be um, offered on on the altar of incense. The furniture meant something. And so again, when when you're looking at this furniture, it was kept in the outer room which led to the veil which divided the inner sanctuary from the outer sanctuary. And he's going to talk about this in just a moment. So the tabernacle quickly was the place where God as spirit dwelled among his people. The writer of Hebrews understands that Jesus is God in the flesh dwelling among his people. The high priest offered the gifts and the sacrifices for sin in the most holy place. Jesus is our high priest of the true tabernacle made by God, not by man. Each year, the high priest offered a blood sacrifice for the sin of the people. Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. In a moment, we're going to talk about the ark This is the place of God's presence. Jesus is God in human form. And then in the ark are are going to contain some items, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So this is part of the meaning. The place was called Hagia. What does that mean? It's the neuter plural of the adjective Hagias. It meant holy. And again, this is one of those words that has lost its meaning in our culture and our society. We use the term holy and we we speak of holy things. We speak of sacred things. We we speak of certain things that, that are pure, absent evil, absent wickedness. And so again, within this tabernacle is the holy place and the holiest of holies. And it says, and behind the second veil, in verse 3, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Now, even in this tabernacle, there is a picture of Jesus who is holy, unspoiled, unblemished, without sin. And so there's this thick veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Priests could operate within the most holy place, or excuse me, the holy place, but only the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place. And so in verse 4 it says, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded And the tablets of the covenant. And so on this Ark of the Covenant and then within the Ark of the Covenant, there were two more pieces of furniture, if you will. There was a table on which the Ark of the Covenant rested. There was the golden censer, or the golden altar of incense. And the gold covered the Ark of the Covenant. And like the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold. The dimensions are described in the Bible. Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, in both height and length. A cubit, by the way, in the ancient world was thought to be 18 inches. But other Bible scholars suggest that the actual length may have been what's called an Egyptian royal cubit. Which when Moses is, is making the directions, it might be 20.62 inches. This is a calculation which would mean the ark was 51 inches by 31 inches by 31 inches or point. One Or 1.3 meters by 0.8 meters by 0.8 meters. The point is that it becomes a type and a picture of the Lord himself. Who is human wood. Divine gold. And then placed within it. We discover that, uh, that there's treasures within it. The golden jar of manna. Aaron's budding staff, some tablets of stone. And so when you when you think about that, again, what does all of this mean? The ark, contents, the tablets of stone, of course, represent the law or the instructions that are given by God. But Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill the law. There is... Aaron's rod. What does that represent, do you suppose? Who can venture a guess? Do you remember why it was called Aaron's budding rod? Because there was some dispute on whether or not Aaron was God's choice to be the high priest. And remember, there was a miracle that took place. The miracle that took place was his dead Stick, this rod literally blossomed. A dead stick came to life. The miracle itself represented the fact that God had made a choice. Aaron was God's choice. And Jesus is God's future choice. And you'll remember it contains the pot that's given with manna that the people. Collected in the wilderness. And you'll remember that they griped and complained about all of this stuff. That bread came down from heaven. And now we begin to understand what the New Testament means. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The golden menorah. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. These are types and pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way. We discover in the scriptures that when Solomon built the temple about 940 BC. The things and the ark were just simply the tables of stone in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 9. The jar of manna disappears. Aaron's budding staff disappears. Where did they go? Where do you suppose they are? I know you're going, you're going to tell us, right? And the answer is, nobody knows. Nobody knows what happened to him. In verse 5, it says, and above it were the cherubim beam of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail So the author doesn't go into a detailed description of the Ark of the Covenant. He simply gives a quick description. It is a box. It is made of acacia wood. It is overlaid by gold. There are two cherubim. And by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word cherubim appears. These are angelic beings. Their wings touch Some scholars believe that these angels had the face of a human being, the wings of a bird, and the body of an animal. We don't know for certain. The author speaks of them as the cherubim of glory. And by the way, there there were two classes of angelic being. They were called seraphim, which means the shining ones or the burning ones. And the cherubim, the, the the cherub is singular, im is plural. That's that's how you make something plural in the Hebrew language. If it's feminine, it's ot. Like mik vot is the plural, and cherubim or seta theme makes it more than one. So this ark becomes a type and a picture. Of the Lord Jesus. Has anyone ever said to you. You can't put God in a box. (laughs) You know it's really ironic. You can't put God in a box. But God could put himself in a box. And that seems to be the case. Remember the Bible says. That the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and tabernacled. Literally, in the Greek language, it means he pitched his tent among us. Remember what the purpose of the tabernacle in the wilderness and even the temple itself? It was to represent the presence of God, and Jesus is the presence of God. And by the way, one of the great mysteries of all time is what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Where is it? Some have suggested it was hidden during the time of the Jewish revolt. Some believe that it was stashed in one of hundreds of limestone tunnels underneath the Temple Mount. Some cite the passage in Matthew's gospel. You'll remember in Matthew 27, 51, it says, At the moment that the curtain of the temple was torn, ripped from top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks split. Some have suggested that when the temple veil itself was torn from top to bottom that the earth itself might have swallowed up this Ark of the Covenant and it got lost in some place. We don't know. We don't know. We have no idea because the Ark of the Covenant isn't mentioned again until the book of Revelation where we find the Ark in heaven. In verse 6, look at what it says. Now when these things had been thus prepared. The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. In the first part of the tabernacle, the priests would come and they would make sure that the lampstands were filled with oil. They would make sure that the baked goods of the, of the, of the loaves were, were, were taken care of. Only the priest had access to a certain part of the tabernacle. And then only the high priest had access to the holiest of all. In verse 7 it says, But into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now I want you to think about that. The offering that is made aren't for willful sin... But for unintentional sin, for ignorant sin, there was no cleansing for willful sin. So you might be thinking, well, then how did people get forgiven? They didn't, their sin got covered because there's really only one way for your sin to be forgiven. It can't just be blotted out. It, it can't just simply be erased. It just can't simply be covered because guess what? It comes back again and again and again. In a helpful little booklet entitled Hebrew Covenants, in, in contrast, Gene um, Fadley writes, "Quote: "...the nature of the old worship showed its shortcomings." It had common priests serving daily in the holy place. And each year, the imperfect high priest would enter the most holy place. Each year, he would first kill a bull for his own sin and those of his family. He carried the fire and the incense into the most holy place. Why? Because the fire would have to be lit to sacrifice It says he carried the fire and incense into the most holy place. He sprinkled it seven times around the ark. He then killed one goat as a sin offering for the people. He carried the blood of the goat into the most holy place to make atonement for the people. That means covering the sin, making reconciliation or propitiation, the New Testament writer calls it, Propitiation is a big word, but let me see if I can help you understand what it means. It means to pay a debt that satisfies the person who's been offended. It means to pay a debt in such a way that the person who's been offended is satisfied. And so the people would anxiously await his return from the most holy place. His return would signal to the people that God had accepted the sacrifice. He would then send the scapegoat away into the wilderness, signifying that their sins were carried away. The problem? It had to be repeated over and over. Dover, and Dover, and Dover, and Dover. So what's different now? The writer is basically saying this. The holy place was only accessible to those people that God had chosen who were priests. And then the holiest was, could, was only accessible by the one high priest. But what's different, the heavenly sanctuary is available, accessible to all through the Lord Jesus. You don't have to be a priest. And you don't have to be the high priest. How do you gain access to God? How do you gain acceptance by God? If you're a Christian, this is how you do it. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. It's that simple. How is that superior? It's superior in every way. Remember, this sacrifice could only be offered during the time of Moses in the tabernacle. After the building of, of Solomon's temple in the temple. There was only one place. There was only one place. There was only one place where sacrifice was accepted. And there was only one place where that sacrifice could be accepted. And that was in Jerusalem. You couldn't just set up your own sacrificial center wherever you went. If you moved to Egypt, you couldn't set one up there. If you moved to Greece, you couldn't go to Greece and set one there. If you moved to Rome, you couldn't go there. If you moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, you couldn't go there. There was only one place and one sacrifice. And so the writer continues in verse 8. That that sanctuary is temporary. The Holy Spirit indicating this in verse 8. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The first tabernacle that he's making reference to is the tabernacle in the wilderness. He's not making reference to the temple that's standing in Jerusalem. So when he says the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing... Because again, remember, 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 there was a holy place and there was a most holy place. There was a veil or a curtain that reminded people that access to God was not yet open. The veil in the temple was a constant reminder that you weren't welcome until Jesus dies on Calvary's cross. And the Bible seems to indicate that hands from heaven came and took this curtain. And by the way, this curtain was probably about 36 inches thick and about 16 feet tall. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. This was God's way of saying... You're welcome. You're free to proceed. By the way, what happened? What did the religious leaders do when they discovered that the curtain was torn in two? They sewed it back up. What kind of crazy person does such a thing? God tears the veil in half And there were a group of people who said, You know what? We don't want access to God by the sacrifice of the Messiah that He sent for us. Do you know what we want? We want our religion. We want our religion. We're happy with our our religion. We're content with our religion. Has anyone ever said to you, Just leave me alone. Stop talking to me about Jesus. I'm happy with my religion. And they're happy with the ritual. And they're they're happy with the temple. And they're happy with lighting the candles. And they're happy with the statues. They're happy with the rules and the regulations and the rituals. And you tell them, do you realize that you can have full, free, wonderful, personal access to God through Jesus Christ? When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, the way was made. And look what the writer says in verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time. In which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Remember what it said in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, It was standing because it was symbolic. It was standing for the present time. In the present time, there were priests who were in the holy place. And there was a high priest who kept going into the most holy place. It was symbolic. The priests went in. They offered the gifts. They offered the sacrifices. They offered the gifts. They offered the sacrifices. And if you go back again, like I said, in the book of Leviticus... There is a burnt offering, there's a grain offering, there's a a peace offering, there is a sin offering, there's a trespass offering. And they went in and they offered them over and over and over again. But no matter how often they offered, and no matter how many times they offered it. Which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. In regard to the conscience. When the offering was made. Did it make you right? Did it cleanse your conscience? Did it remove the sin? This is what the author is saying. While the veil or the curtain remained in the sanctuary, there was a division between that which was holy and that which was most holy. The veil was the symbol of the picture of God's relationship between himself and the children of Israel. And when Jesus dies, the veil is torn. The need for the earthly sanctuary is abolished. That's what the writer is saying. How can you say such a thing? Remember, this is the thing that got Jesus into so much trouble. Do you remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? Tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. And remember their response? It's taken over 40 years. it's way longer than you've been alive to build this temple. It took years and years and years and years and years to fabricate this, this temple. And you're, gonna, you're telling us that you can tear it down within three days. And remember, the Bible says that he was speaking of the tabernacle or the temple of his body. Jesus is going to come back to life. Now, again, I want you to think it through. Tabernacle in the wilderness represents the presence of God. Temple on the temple mount represents the presence of God. Holy and then most holy place representing the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that's given represents the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice is made is the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer is reminding you that the shadow is passing. The type in the picture is going. That which is symbolic is being replaced by that which is substantive. That was the old picture. It was a momentary glimpse. The service in the tabernacle was symbolic for the present time. A temporary picture, a momentary glimpse. And now Jesus is the permanent picture. The old tabernacle system was the symbol, the person of Jesus, the substance. The King James translates this, which was a figure of the time then present. When you look at that text, when it says in verse 9, In the the New King James, it says symbolic. In the Old King James, it says figure. In the Greek text, it came as a surprise to me all over again. That the word is parabole. We get the word parable from that word. It's a rich word. It means to place side by side. And then compare. The word parabole came to mean an earthly picture that represented a heavenly truth. And so it came to mean to place one thing next to another thing and then compare. Or to illustrate. And so in that very meaning, it was symbolic or illustrative for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered. But even those gifts and sacrifices that were offered didn't make the conscience clear, didn't permanently cleanse from sin. You've probably wondered, maybe some of you have. How were people saved prior to Jesus? How did people come into a right relationship with God? How could they have a right standing with God prior to the coming of Jesus? Prior to the life of Jesus. Prior to the death of Jesus. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus. Every single human being who lived prior to Jesus had to look to Jesus, to a future Jesus who would come and be the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And every single person living after Jesus has to look back to Jesus as the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. From Adam until the very last human draws his very last breath will have to be saved by grace, through faith, and that not of themselves. Every person would have to look to God and believe that God would be the solution to the problem of their sin. The people retained a guilty conscience. They weren't free from the guilt of sin. Well, what about those earlier offerings? Day after day, feast after feast, celebration after celebration... Offerings made, rivers of blood, rivers of blood. According to some estimates, during the time of Jesus, you had so many millions of people in Jerusalem proper. And you had so many lambs that were slaughtered that it literally created a river of blood. But the river of blood wasn't enough to make the sin go away forever to so what did the old covenant really provide it fell short in every category what does the new covenant provide it is adequate sufficient super sufficient Because the limits and the inadequacies of the old was absolutely imperative that the new be believed and embraced. Here's what the writer is basically saying. That all of the things that we've talked about. The tabernacle. The priest. The sacrifice. The ark. The contents in the ark. All were types. Pictures. Visions. Visions. Glimpses, previews of Jesus. The Lord was playing a cosmic kind of game. Inviting the children of Israel to look into the circumstances of their life. Their tabernacle, their priest, their sacrifice, the ark. Begging them to open up their eyes and open up their hearts. So that they could see the truth about Jesus. Did it free them from the guilt of their sin? No. By the way, has religion ever freed a single person from the guilt of sin? Not a one. Not even one person. There's only one way to have your sin cleansed. And there's only one Savior who will do it. And so in verse 10, look what it says. Concerned only with foods. Drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of the Reformation. So what do foods, drinks, various washings all have in common? What's the connector? Food, drink, washing. They're all external. They're all on the outside. You take food and you put it in your mouth. You take drink, you put it in your mouth. You take water and you wash your body. These are all external things that are supposed to represent something that happens in the, that's internal. They are visible and external. What are the fleshly or the carnal ordinances? These are the rituals, these are the ceremonies, these are the things that dealt with the external but had no power at all to cleanse the internal. It had no power to reach into the soul. It had no power to change your heart forever. You see, this is why religion is so unsatisfying. This is the reason why religion is so not satisfactory. You can go to a church, you can imbibe in a ritual, you can light a candle, you can look at a statue, you can visit a holy place, you can do all of these things and you can do them over and over and over again. But are they satisfying? Do they fulfill you? Do they make your sin go away? And do they fill your heart with hope? This is interesting to me. They were temporary. Jesus is permanent. They pointed to the future. They pointed to grace. They pointed to a sacrifice. And by the way, look at the end of verse 10. Concerning only with the food and the drinks, the washings, the fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation that word reformation is fascinating it's a greek word that's used only here it appears nowhere else in the greek new testament it's the greek word diorthosis it comes from the greek verb diorthosi It was a word that you would use when someone had lost track or gotten off the beaten track. It was used of a person who had lost their way and they needed to be on the right road and they needed to be going in the right direction. And so it was a word that meant to pick up and put on the right path. And I think that that's the way it might be used in the NIV or possibly the new order. The whole point being, you were on an old path and now you need to be on the new path. You were a part of the old order, but now you need to be a part of the new order. Will a man-made temple or a religious ritual or a religious ceremony make you acceptable to God? Is no. What will make you acceptable to God? Jesus. Jesus makes you acceptable to, to God. He loves you, He's willing to forgive you, He's willing to give you access to God. Approaching God with gifts and sacrifices never, never made a single person acceptable to God. Such acts deal with the physical. It deals with the material. It deals with the temporal. It can't remove guilt. It can't make sin go away. So, what can you give him? There's only one thing that he wants from you your love, your heart, your affection. You know, your love and your affection and your desire to know him and love him is invisible and intangible. Can you imagine if I said, okay, your homework for tonight is to go home, find a jar big enough to, that, that you can put all of your love for Jesus into that jar. And you might be thinking, how in the world could I do that? I heard someone say he, he, he had a, a great big glass. And he said, OK, class, this is your assignment. I want you to take all the air out of the glass. And these were engineering students, so they're trying to think of all the different ways. They could put a hermetic seal on the top. They could pump out the air, creating a perfect vacuum. They're trying to figure out all different kinds of ways that they can get the air out of the glass. And some clever person went over with water and just filled the cup with water, and all the air is gone. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was that simple? that that's what you do to fill up the heart of God with your love and your affection, Jesus sets you on the right path. The great day of reformation, the day when the material becomes spiritual, it's the day when the natural becomes supernatural, it's the day when the temporal becomes eternal. The shadow now has substance. No wonder Jesus warned the religious leaders and he said, you honor me with your lips but your heart is far from me. Do you honor the Lord with your lips but your heart is far from him? Did you really think that friendship with God was the food that you eat or the beverage that you drink? And now we understand even better. You see the light in the temple, Jesus says. I'm the light of the world. You see the bread on the altar. I'm the bread that came down from heaven, Jesus says. You might be thinking, I'm not a Jew. And and I'm not falling into the religious trap of returning to Judaism. But every single person runs the risk of returning to something that was comfortable and familiar to them when all along God looks in love to you just to have a relationship with him. It seems crazy for me to have to say it over and over and over again, but only Jesus can make you acceptable to God. And so never, never, never Be satisfied with the symbol when you can have the substance. Pastor Chuck used to tell a story about three men who were marooned on a desert island. He said that a genie appeared and said, what what would you like to have? Any wish, it's yours. One man said, I miss my family in Colorado. and He's gone. The second man said, I miss my brokerage firm in Boston, and I wish I could go back to work, and she's gone. And the third man said, I'm so lonely. I wish my friends were back. Whoosh! They were back. Some people are stuck on a religious island, they want to go back. To religion. When the religious leaders asked Jesus, What must I do to work the work of God? Here was Jesus' simple reply Believe on him whom he has sent. Have you believed in Jesus? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? If you do, you're going to be just fine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, for that person who's stuck on the religious desert island, they want what's familiar. Lord, I pray that they would see beyond the symbol and that they would look to the substance. Lord, when they see a light, they would remember that Jesus is the light. When they see the bread, they would know that Jesus is the only satisfying spiritual bread. And so when Jesus says, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that we would love our Lord and we would love the truth. And again, Father, for the person who's wondering about that spiritual, religious thing and whether they need that thing in order to be acceptable to God, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded we are accepted in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.